I mean, how do you think about that, Muji? The, this seems like a lot of these are winner-take-most uh, niches. You know, you don't need to have 17 identity providers. You might just need Okta or, you know, for Twilio, for communications. It seems like you've kind of got these fiefdoms that are approaching. How do you think about things in terms of nice-to-have versus absolutely necessary and embedded in the business? Oh, I mean, that's one of the industries I follow is developer tooling. And it's precisely for that. You're trying to find the picks and shovels to... Um, other, for other apps to be built on top of. And absolutely, that is a, a key to that uh, investment theory is that they are ex- extremely sticky services that have a switching, high switching costs. And so it was very difficult. Like a, a, a one that came up with Twilio was that Uber was leaving. And obviously, it was a major customer at the time and had a negative effect on the stock, but they recovered quite nicely because guess what land and expand they were landing all these other customers the platform they built makes it so much easier for any app to have you know direct communications with customers and so it um you know uber had finally reached a state where it was able to dedicate the resources to building it itself but that is incredibly complex to build a communications network yourself and and interoperate with all the um uh, telcos out there, you had to find some other service uh, in order to handle maybe that uh, last leg of the communications for you. And so it's it's about making these tools that reduce the friction of developers. And I think the selling point of all these developer tools like this, whether it's Okta for our, uh, cons- consumer identity or Auth0 now uh, that they acquired, or it's Twilio for communications, your developers don't have to spend and waste their time building the framework of your application for the communications part, for the login piece. They can sit and focus on what the secret sauce is of that company. They can focus on what the value add is that the company is providing and not worry and waste time on the you know structural foundations of the app that they can be rolling immediately with these tools. And so it's, it's, I've always been incredibly interested in developer tooling for the, for this reasons. And, and so on that note of developer tooling, I mean, you now got the picks and shovels that you just mentioned. They're used for very specific things that people can build things on top of. Yeah. I, when, when you say that, I think of, I think of Netflix kind of as, as one of the companies that did that really, really well a decade ago. You know, they were really kind of one of the earliest believers in microservices. You know, you could actually build things in parts rather than this giant, IT infrastructure that's needed to launch an app on, on app day and they need to fix it. And then you need to go back. I mean, you could do this incrementally. Oh um, yeah. And all, all, it wasn't just Netflix. It was all of those kind of tech behemoths, Facebook, LinkedIn, Netflix. Um, uh, that's where, that was the source for a lot of these open source tools. They had the know-how to build tools around these common needs they had around data for instance. And so like a lot of these data platforms, Apache Kafka, we were just talking about, spun out of LinkedIn. A lot of analytical tools like Apache Heron spun out of uh, Twitter. Um, Apache Pulsar, the competitor to Kafka, uh, spun out of Yahoo. And so you had this know-how in these companies, and that's what's kind of spun out into these open source tools. But then the rise of, of, of SaaS tooling really provided that as a service. And that's it allows an agility and nimbleness as you're developing software apps that didn't exist before. 
And so that's why we're seeing such rapid innovation, I feel like, in today's cloud world is that developers can move so much faster than they used to be able to. And on that note, can you talk uh, on that note of, of open source developer tools, can you talk a little bit about where you what you see with Kubernetes right now, I know this has been incredibly popular lately. Um, are there companies that you think are embracing, and this is kind of the DevOps movement, right? Moving things more quickly, more efficiently as you're building yeah. things. Are there certain companies out there that you think are really doing a good job taking advantage of open source Kubernetes? Uh, well, certainly almost every company is going to be taking advantage of it for any um, on-prem, but also you can use um, hosted Kubernetes services. Again, it's a complex system to run yourself. Um, but it takes so much pain away from the development process. Uh, it, it's actually something I'm, I'm, I'm planning on writing a little bit about is the kind of the brief history of software development, just to kind of understand how things have evolved. But Kubernetes is, um, you know, kind of where things are at now. I, I was just speaking just moments ago about how in the olden days you had to purchase hardware and, you know, you're purchasing hardware to host your uh, database on and you had to buy it with a certain, you know, kind of powerful specs. But like the database server I ran that was incredibly heavily used and hosted, you know, 50 different heavily used databases at one time was maybe 5% CPU usage, 10% memory usage at any time. And so there's such idle capacity on the hardware that you purchase what Kubernetes and, and, and underlying it, uh, Docker and containerism solve is that you can maximize the usage of your existing hardware. And so that's really what the movement is about is that you don't have to have idle processes around. You can, you can, have, um, you can use all your capacity uh, as needed, but also it gives you the scale capabilities of the cloud um, but, but on-premise where you can, if, if, if a certain workload or application is having heavy um, usage, it can scale up or down as needed. And so you can kind of um, start seeing the benefits to a developer. And with that DevOps um, initiative, it's, it's really the merging of developers and IT in order to um, you know, make things easier on both fronts. Uh, you know, so again, Kubernetes is kind of complex to run, but from the user's perspective, which is the developer's perspective, it's it's uh, a godsend. It's it, it makes things so much easier to deploy in a um, repeatable way with containers, and then you can really right size the usage on the underlying hardware. But also, there's a um, transferability with it, so I can develop something and get my application running and or microservices running. Lo, uh, either locally on my system or on on-premise hardware, and then we can deploy it into the cloud, for instance, um, into a managed Kubernetes service. And so you really got a lot of optionality with how you deploy and to where you deploy. And that's really what I think has led to, you know, heavy usage of the of cloud infrastructure. Okay, long live Kubernetes, long live containers. This is a, a really big yeah. deal that we want to keep I don't know if there's a, a way to invest in that. I, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not going to say that there's, you know, there is a company around Docker, for instance, but it's, uh, and Kubernetes spun out of Google uh, as an open source package. Project um, Borg, I'm sure, right? I'm sure there's services around that, but it's really the cloud vendors that I think are taking most advantage uh, of that particular capability. But what you do see because of that is the rise of other ways of developing like microservices that you were talking about. That is what leads to the importance of things like Apache Kafka, where you've got messaging system between the microservices. Um, and so it gets uh, it gets really complex. It, it's 
for me, I, I guess I don't worry about that level of detail other than knowing how it affects my companies because it does affect a company like Datadog, like CrowdStrike that you install on your system for observability or cybersecurity. You might install on your on-prem server, but when you move your workload to Kubernetes and Docker, that you know, you're not on the server, you're on the Kubernetes cluster at that point. And so it changes the paradigm of how those companies work. And luckily, both of them have adapted to, um, you know, what are called cloud workloads uh, quite extensively. Well, let's talk about one of those companies that has taken advantage of, of so many of those resources moving to the cloud, right? You mentioned about you want to have no idle capacity, right? You want to move your processing to the cloud, you want to move your data storage to the cloud. We've seen Snowflake come out and take advantage of those tools moving to the cloud, right? Building upon Absolutely. the layer of, of the cloud service providers and saying, hey, we can do parallel optimization on this. We can uh, efficiently run this in a way that utilizes all the service providers that have those infrastructure blocks in place for you to focus on the apps. And Snowflakes can be, can be the place that does that. Um, so two questions on this, Muji. Uh, first is, are, are, is, are the cloud service providers differentiated from each other or are these resources that, that Azure is the same as Google Cloud and we're kind of approaching the point where license agreements are available in any region out there, the building blocks are kind of uh, commoditized. Is, is it something that the cloud is just the underlying infrastructure that everyone's really interested in the top layer building upon that now? Well, yeah, certainly what you have with the, with the cloud vendors is that they wanna provide all the services to, for lock-in that you're going to remain within their ecosystem for all your needs, whether it be uh, data movement, um, analyzing that data, um, creating apps, creating serverless functions, uh, raw object storage. You know, they want, they want you to remain within their platform uh, and, and have it within what's called core cloud. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a lot of new dynamics coming up on that front. Um, certainly, Snowflake is a, is a pretty interesting one in that they are, again, and like all the, you know, we were talking about developer tooling, databases are, are exactly the same thing. Databases are a tool to let developers move faster. You don't have to um, worry, especially the managed services, you don't have to worry about creating or, or maintaining um, the, the database infrastructure yourself, especially on-premise. So these hosted uh, and managed database services that are cropping up have had a lot of success and that's driven the success of MongoDB, the success of Elastic. Um, Snowflake is, is a, uh, not a, <laughs> an open source tool. It is a um, fully turnkey managed database service that can be used for data warehousing. It can be used for data lakes and um, it absolutely, uh, it, it's, primary um, um, uh, point for me and strength for me, I guess I should say, is that it's cloud agnostic. It can live across all cloud environments. But not only that, they made some architectural decisions within when they created it that really adopted from that Hadoop uh, architecture we were just discussing. I love how all this circles back to it. Right, right. It's a giant <laughs> circle. It's interconnected. But, but they, they separated storage from compute, uh, unlike a, a lot of the other competing data warehousing so they were ahead on two fronts. They, they beat all the legacy vendors for data warehouses to the cloud as a, as a managed turnkey service where you didn't have built uh, knobs to, to adjust. It, it's, it's very simple to use, but, it's, um, but they're also cloud agnostic. So kind of like I was talking about with Confluent where they could provide the messaging between clouds. Snowflake is the same thing. You can have one set of 
data and it can be replicated across the clouds for you and or across cloud regions. And so if you've got one, this was a, a exactly shown by a customer profile of PepsiCo. They had one part of the company, the West Coast of PepsiCo was using AWS. The East Coast was using Azure and they had one pool of data on Snowflake, yet it existed on both clouds and cross-replicated behind the scenes, entirely controlled by Snowflake. Nothing had to be done in this interconnection from the customer's perspective. And so they have such a highly differentiated product from what the cloud vendors are providing uh, in terms of data warehouse. But then at the same time, on uh, you know, head-to-head -head comparisons done by Fivetran, a um, kind of data warehouse pipelining tool where you can ship data from various sources into your data warehouse, found that um, because of that storage versus compute split, that they that Snowflake was the fastest and cheapest option out there currently. And so I think Snowflake figured out the right architecture on how to use the same underlying pieces of these cloud vendors they're using aws s3 or azure blob as the raw storage they're using ec2 or um, uh, azure compute nodes to ho house their services that sit over it and so they're using the same infrastructures the the cloud vendors themselves but have found a way to do it better than they have plus with the incredibly added bonus that they're cloud agnostic and, and your data can live anywhere in the world so making huge uh, um, advancements in kind of that digital transformation you were discussing, um, getting folks from legacy on-premise data warehouse systems into the cloud. But then once there, the other value prop of, of Snowflake is the shareability of the data from there, how you can share it in little partnerships. You can um, subscribe to data feeds or publish these data feeds that are available to the public. Like say, and that's a way for companies to even monetize their own data. A company like Foursquare, you know, an app built around check-ins made this map of all the locations that you can check into across the US and sell that as a data set in the Snowflake ecosystem. And so there's these data sets that you can use to enrich your own, whether it's S&P 500 data, it's COVID data sets to see how the spread might affect your retail chain. You can be pulling these into your data sets in, in, in queries within Snowflake. And so there's this um, exchange of data uh, possibilities in Snowflake that you're also not going to get in the existing cloud vendors. In, in full disclosure, I'm a, a huge bull on Snowflake. Personally, a shareholder of the company. It, it's really interesting Thanks. to see their IP and their know-how come from Oracle, you know, who built a lot of the early stages of the cloud. Also with a you know, person who's really... In, 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 the executive is a go and get them kind of guy. Frank Slootman, you know, coming from ServiceNow, just gets things done and focuses that company so well. I'm a huge fan of this as well. I think one criticism of Snowflake, uh, Matthew, is, is that people are always calling it overvalued, right? Everyone's saying, oh, the price to sales is way too high. The valuation is way too high. I would argue that the denominator of those comparisons is still in its infancy, and that the cloud has got plenty of years, if not decades, of growth ahead of it. What inning are you've been somebody who's seen that transition firsthand, as you said, in the olden days when we used to have everything on prem and now moving it to the cloud? Uh, what inning are we in the digital transformation? Are we still in the first and second inning, or have we kind of gotten a lot of the larger companies on board where we're closer to the middle of this game? 
Oh, absolutely. Early innings. I mean, getting on to uh, get starting to use cloud services, getting uh, improving your development processes, adopting other ways of developing rather than monolithic apps. Um, it, it's all in its infancy right now. And so, you know, moving to the cloud is step one, but then taking full advantage of the cloud and multi-cloud or hybrid uh, environments, um, uh, taking advantage of edge networks, for instance, that I talk about frequently, That's there's a whole new um, compute paradigm and networking paradigm of how you can distribute data around. That's, um, uh, that's all in, in its infancy. And so core cloud, you know, is, is maybe in the second inning and, and everything else is in the first inning in terms of digital transformation. And so it, it's all, it, it's all just beginning. It's, that's why I'm so excited about uh, right, in researching, investing, and writing about these things. <laughs> it's that there's no, there's no end to it. I mean, we haven't even talked about uh, analytics and AI yet. I mean, that's talk about being in its infancy companies taking advantage of AI. That's, 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 that's just being born right now, quite frankly. So lots to come from here. The first pitch has been thrown, but there's still plenty of a ball game ahead for this. Yeah. I, in, in response to your, to your criticism of Snowflake, my only, the only reason I'm mad at Snowflake is that they waited so long to IPO. They, sure. uh, it's a company that I had been on my radar for more than a year prior. And I just wish that they had uh, allowed me to, to join along on that initial success <laughs> instead of waiting and making uh, uh, everyone else aware of what an attractive company they are at the same time. So, yeah, very good point. But yeah, um, I mean, when you're growing hundred percent, it's, it's, you know, the valuation is kind of moot at that point. It's, it's, it, it's going to make up a lot of ground. And even if the um, multiples contract, there's a lot of leeway between hundred percent growth and multiple contraction that is still a profitable investment. And so I, I see a lot of potential there. 160% plus net retention rates, Matthew, for, for Snowflake. And uh, seeing how quickly they're growing. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, uh, using the usage-based metrics we were talking about before, customer growth is astounding. NRR, astounding. I mean, like you just don't see those rates. Um, I, I th the only other company I can even think of that, ha that reports something that high is Agora. Uh, uh, from China, the um, uh, and then the gross margin is inching up. They're making more. They're, they're able to leverage their platform more and more. They're making performance improvements. They're making storage improvements that just continue to cause gross margin to rise. Love seeing all those metrics. I wanted to change gears a little bit and talk about a different topic, which I know that you follow quite closely, which is cybersecurity. We've seen an increase in activity in this space uh, for good reason. Last, last year, we saw the, the, the SolarWinds hack, you know, a very highly public uh, uh, hack that just happened at Colonial Pipeline even more recently, you know, ransomware that was paid in Bitcoin for the operations being shut down of the pipeline in the Southeast United States. And then even just recently, we've seen a White House executive order to really up the game on corporate cybersecurity, uh, government and corporate cybersecurity. Where do you think we stand in cybersecurity and, and who benefits from this? Well, that's a big topic. Uh, and it's one I've, I've written extensively about. Um, I've identified zero trust pretty early on, maybe even a little too early. It took companies uh, a lot longer to, to, to pay attention. But the, the zero trust paradigm of security 
which is trust no one at all times, um, it was a complete paradigm shift from the days of old, or, or, which are still in place. Let's not, let's not call them old, but the castle and moat method of security, which is I'm going to build an impenetrable fortress of my network and grant you access through a VPN or some other method to be able to access that network. And then once you're within the network, you can go do whatever you need to do. Um, that does not work. Uh, the VPNs are um, breachable. And then once inside, you can uh, you know, crisscross across all these systems and find other vulnerabilities to dig in further. And so um, it's called lateral movement in the, in the industry. Um, so zero trust prevents lateral movement. It prevents uh, privilege escalation, which is finding a way to grant yourself uh, admin rights while you're logged in. Um, and it basically creates in a, and I wrote a public uh, piece on this recently. So please do go check out my blog about what is zero trust uh, was a post this past month, but basically it, um, zero trust allows ephemeral... by the way. that blog was fantastic. That you wrote. Oh, thank you. Lots of stick men. I, I like to add lots of stick men to my, yes. to my drawings. And, and, and I like to draw to make these things uh, a lot clearer. And uh, so basically zero trust creates an ephemeral network. It sees who you are. You establish your identity, which is the authorization pro process. You use something like Octafor. But that also determines your rights, which is the authorization piece. Um, so your rights are fixed. That's what prevents the privilege escalation. But then it creates an ephemeral network connection to whatever it is you're trying to access. And that's what prevents the lateral movement uh, within the old castle and moat scenario. And it's, it's highly complex. You know, there's different ways of doing um, that ephemeral network connection, but uh, it, it's complex. But what these new uh, cloud native cybersecurity companies allow for is taking all that complexity out of the equation, it's much more frictionless and you can use these services to tie in your users to your applications. And so the rise of zero trust is, has been critical, I think, for cybersecurity. Um, and it would have prevented many of these breaches for sure. Um, not all of them, but uh, another thing that folds into zero trust besides identity providers is that the, it's kind of pivoted zero trust to also allow what's called device posture. So you can tie into these cybersecurity services that are managing your fleet of enterprise devices. And that could be laptops, that could be workstations, phones, tablets, servers. All of those are, are what are considered endpoints. Um, and, and you can have a service like CrowdStrike manage those endpoints for you and provide malware protection. And so they run an agent on those devices. Um, so you can combine what Okta is giving you, managing your users, and you can combine what CrowdStrike is doing, managing your devices, into a stronger zero-trust platform. So all these zero-trust providers, and you know, Zscaler is one, Cloudflare is, is relatively new to the market, uh, Palo Alto is getting into it uh, heavily. They can provide and tie into that identity provider and device provider and tie the access rights who can access what uh, down so granularly combined with the ephemeral network connection, that's what's given rise to these 
zero trust platforms. And they're, it's critical. It's, um, it's changing the landscape of cybersecurity. It's been interesting to watch the rise of Bitcoin, I feel like has, has enabled this kind of brazenness with ransomware. You know, this wasn't possible. Certainly, you know, ransoms can occur, but they had to go through the financial system and could be tracked and stopped potentially. And now, you know, that's what's um, caused the rise of ransomware and these platforms that are combining ransomware authors with people who are hackers and, and, and know how to hack into systems. They're combining and sharing the loot in ransomware attempts. And we're seeing how heavy a toll that takes. I live in the Southeast United States and saw a direct effect when Colonial Pipeline billing system, it wasn't even their pipeline itself. It was their billing system got hacked, encrypted and uh, held as ransom and they paid it. And we saw the effects as they couldn't, didn't know how to bill their customers. So shut everything down. It, you know, extreme response and, uh, you know, caused a major panic in a quarter of the nation. So, you know, we're starting now that so much infrastructure is driven by systems. You've got IOT devices out there that have been so security lacks uh, in general, where, you know, you have a, a model of camera that's being used for traffic cameras, always has the same administrative password hard-coded into it you know or or doesn't have a firewall over it so that you can always directly access the ip um so you know iot devices are being uh hacked into and used as bots to attack others and distributed denial of service attacks but also operational technology which is called ot which is think of smart factories smart tractors um, and now you have smart devices in your home, your ring camera, your Amazon um, Alexa device. All of these are uh, Kevin Kelly, a, uh, a technologist uh, that used to work for Wired or started Wired, um, had, a, had a great uh, tweet one time. Anytime you read the word smart device, substitute hackable device. <laughs> and so it, we're in the we're in the age of hacking. And you, you, any enterprise customer has to now take it seriously. And I, I think the benefit of these incredibly widespread attacks with solar winds, the, the sunburst attack, and now the colonial pipeline and, and countless other ransomware attacks that have occurred, finally drove the federal government in the U.S. to uh, address this. And because it's, it's, it's being done by nation states, it's not just uh you know a bunch of teenagers in finland you know hacking into these systems it's it's nation states that are supporting this and and in order to uh you know further their intel and so i'm, I'm really ex excited that the federal government finally has a fire under it to um take this more seriously and what they explicitly said in their eo um that i have written about a, a little bit um in my premium sub is um, that uh, they're going to adopt in a very rapid fashion for the federal government. Um, but there is a command for all of the uh, oversight agencies within the government to adopt uh, rules and regulations around zero trust and, and moving um, civilian, federal civilian agencies and contractors to them to a zero trust model of network access. 
and then to adopt uh, endpoint protection solutions as well so that the managed fleet of devices can be protected. And so I think all of those companies I've, I've mentioned with cybersecurity, it's, it's going to rise all boats here. There's going to be um, a, a lot of movement, uh, not only within federal agencies and then you know major enterprises that all contract to the federal agencies, but I think it's going to make slower moving more myopic enterprises finally realize that they have to take this seriously. It's, it's uh, cybersecurity is a, a vital part of IT spend at this point. So I think it's, you know, massive um, uh, tailwinds for companies like CrowdStrike and Okta that are kind of the picks and shovels of zero trust, but also, um, you know, for all those zero trust providers, a company like Zscaler already has FedRAMP approval high, so can basically go into any civilian agency at this point, and they're striving for more. You know, they want to get into the DoD uh, levels and 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 be able to 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 work with some of the um, agencies that are dealing more with um, classified information. But for now, they they basically have uh, federal authorization to work with any civilian agency, and so that, I think that's a company that has a lot of tailwinds too. Sure, and double clicking, great. Such great insight there, uh, Muji, but just double click on one of the things you said about how this is changing the cybersecurity landscape out there. I can certainly see how this is going to benefit companies like Okta for user and identity and companies like CrowdStrike for endpoint protection. How does this change the existing landscape for the really, really large cybersecurity vendors? The things like the Palo Alto networks that were going after network protection, right? The Fortinets, the ones that were protecting things before that were important but now the game is changing and hackers are finding new ways into those networks. Are they going out and acquiring these small pieces that incrementally improve their offering? Uh, or do they get replaced? I mean, I've, I've heard that large corporations now on average have more than 50 cybersecurity vendors that they're working with. Do they need to keep those in place or is just the, uh, the overall game changing that you start working with different vendors than you had before? That's a big question. Um, the, uh, I, I feel like the legacy players for firewalls, Fortinet and Palo Alto, were a little slow to adopt the cloud model. And then subsequently, they were a little slow to adopt the zero trust model. They're all in now. There's, there's no question. Zero trust is the buzzword in cybersecurity and um, has been for the past year. And in fact, you can see it if you follow Palo Alto, massive restructuring of their company into two segments that is basically trying to combine CrowdStrike endpoint protection with Zscaler Zero Trust in two segments. And so they're absolutely paying attention. But I think right now they're the major vendors that you're discussing. And so their focus first and foremost is in retaining their existing customers, right? And so they, they're they moving quickly into these um, um areas, but it's, it's to transition their own customers. And so they kind of have muted growth because of that, the top line growth, because they're transitioning from, you know, kind of next gen firewalls into zero trust for, for these solutions. Um, but, they've, they, but they've done well, but they've given an opening, I feel like, to companies like Zscaler and CrowdStrike, and, and they've had huge success. And the, I, I see it in the customer growth. You just see this massive onboarding of new customers, m uh, incredibly high NRR with these companies, and hyper growth at the top line just shows you that they're amassing customers because they're a preferred solution right now. And so, you know, that's it's not investing in growth for growth's sake. It's that it 
you know, you can see that there's a humongous appeal for these new approaches. And people are going with the cloud native solutions for that rather than the uh, existing vendors that are, you know, playing catch up. Well, Muji, this has been incredibly insightful. You know, we've been chatting almost for an hour and a half here about a lot oh, of things. This is it all goes so quickly. So much fun. It, it's incredible. <laughs> uh, if, if it is too long, didn't read uh, for people that, that aren't able to make it through 90 minutes of a podcast here. I mean, you said those different approaches. We, we've chatted about quite a bit here, but is there anything that we haven't covered that you're also really, really excited about that you're tuned in on? Obviously, Hypergrowth is, is your blog that you follow a lot of these things in the details just in a bigger picture, is there one or two things we didn't cover on this podcast that we should be paying more attention to? Oh, for sure. I mean, we've talked about developer tooling, open source, usage-based models, um, Snowflake, and cybersecurity. But uh, edge networks, I, I briefly mentioned in there, but it's, um, it's, it's really changing the paradigm of how networking happens. Everyone focuses on the compute aspect of it, which is you know, putting, allowing uh, apps to have logic and, and be running. Uh, much closer to um, end users instead of in centralized uh, core cloud. Um, so, you know, things that are really uh, latency sensitive can completely benefit from that. But edge networks, what they forget is that it's a programmable network that is, can be controlled by that compute. And so it can be making logic decisions as the, as the uh, data traverses the globe. And, you know, you look at the trends from Gartner, that you know, IoT is going to drive a lot of new um, data coming in from all of these smart cars and from all of these smart buildings and smart cities and smart factories. And so we've got sensors everywhere and cameras. Um, but you know, you also have your distributed point of sale systems and um, uh, and now uh, remote users are are dispersing around the globe. They're not so much in centralized headquarters anymore. And so I think you will see it uh, emerge as a um, all new paradigm kind of against core cloud. And, um, you know, a company I follow heavily there is Cloudflare that um, crosses a lot of boundaries. They are also a zero trust company um, and a networking company uh, like Zscaler, but also with edge compute. Um, and much less, a, you know, it's a, it's a CDN like Fastly. And so um, it's, it's definitely one to watch as well. And that industry in general. Well, once again, our guest today has been Matthew Esch, a.k.a. Muji. Runs uh, one of the most insightful and, and forward-thinking websites that, that I've come across. It's hypergrowth.com. Hypergrowth with three H's. I, I just think that, Muji, you're one of the most thorough analysts that I've chatted with. Uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on the Seven Investing Podcast today. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, I've always enjoyed talking to you because I feel like you're the same. You're so forward-looking with with some of this, uh, certainly with the cloud and data. So it's there's so much more to come. That's that's the exciting part here. You know, like like we said, AI. Like, haven't even another industry to watch. But who knows what's possible there? Well, we'll we'll, we'll find out when the future hits us. So. And that's dot uh, dot dot. It's exciting to, to talk about. Muji. That's a future podcast, right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's see. Let's see where we are in another year. That's right. I'm sure a lot will occur. So, well, thanks very much uh, for yeah. appearing. You know, it's been a, a real pleasure chatting with you again, and um, looking forward to keeping in touch with you and chatting again here soon. Thanks, Simon. Good to see you. And thanks everyone for tuning in to this edition of our Seven Investing Podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are Seven. 
reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.